Good evening, everybody. First, I want to apologize that we are not live tonight, but we are recording and we will be posting in the morning. This week's portion begins with the words, See, I have placed before you today a blessing and a curse. The word re'eh is see in singular form. What does it mean to see? What does it mean to choose between a bracha, kala, a blessing, and a curse? We'll see later that Moses uses the same terms and tells people to choose between life and death and good and evil. Why would anyone choose a curse, death, or evil? And how do we define a blessing and a curse? Where is this a protection from the negative forces? Why is there a problem for people to rest? What's the secret of kapai, my palms? And how do we achieve success in Elul, which we are about to begin in a few days? Tonight's class is dedicated in loving memory and le'ilui nishmat Amy Haber, Gittel Bracha Bat Altalea, an amazing mother, wife, daughter, and friend, during the week of her Azkara, her Yartzeit, by our good friend Jimmy Haber and his son Nathan Haber. May her neshama have an aliyah. Le'a shalom. So we mentioned that this word that begins this week's portion, re'eh, is to see in a singular form. And although there are a number of explanations, perhaps we could suggest that Moshe Rabbeinu, Moses, is reminding the people that we must see before us, each of us as individuals, our choices in life. Many of the rabbis comment on this portion that it is a reminder that Moshe is telling us that life is a life based on free will. And each of us faces our own challenges, our own tests. And those tests look different to each of us from our own perspective. Each of us is here for a different reason, to accomplish something different in this world. And each of us sees things a little differently. The difficulty is that we are often pushed in our decisions by influences outside of us. Many times these outside forces can have a negative effect. We're afraid to do what we really want to do because we're so afraid of what people are going to see and think. There's this new word in the world called woke. Woke is, uh, I don't know, I guess I'm unwoke. But some of the ideas are hard for me to understand. And I think that they're having an effect on the way so many of us think, almost uh, pressing us to take a stance, even if the stance is done without enough information or even done blindly. Today, we see so many people who are somewhat enslaved or at least limited in their independence based on an ever-changing and somewhat confusing societal norm expectations are depicted in social media and we follow what was okay yesterday it's not okay today and probably what's okay today will absolutely not be okay tomorrow so because we worry about what society says today we lose our independent choice we are blocked some way in in our thinking we saw the reality in the real world when so many people 
jumped on the bandwagon to criticize Israel last month. And so many of those people were either totally unaware of the truths and the realities on the ground, or they were simply afraid to hold on to their true values and say what they truly believed because of societal or social media pressures. We saw this especially with politicians, and we see it all the time with politicians. It's uh, it's the tail leading the, the head. Wag the, wag the tail. This lack of individual thinking and independence is really tragic. On Shabbat, I told an old story. And uh, I, I told it in really in context of this being a wedding week or wedding month or wedding season. But it's a simple story that really speaks to the heart of our entire inability to think on our own and to do what we think is right. And the reality is that sometimes the answer is not so simple and sometimes there may not even be a right answer. But the problem is that we are all so afraid of what everyone else is going to think. We're so afraid of what people are going to say about us. We're so afraid that we sometimes refuse to do what's right. And we have to guard ourselves from jumping onto that social media or mob thinking bandwagon. So uh, as I was saying that that we're we're in this uh, wedding season, you know, because Tisha B'Av came out so early this year in the middle of July. So the no wedding season began at the end of June and extended through the middle of July. And then all of a sudden we find ourselves from the middle of July all through the summer to Labor Day. Wedding, 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 wedding every week, every night. Wedding. Now... I remember the first time I saw in an Ashkenaz wedding ceremony where the bride, before the actual ceremony, circles the groom seven times. It's before the, the initial blessings. And when I first saw this, I joked that it reminded me of Joshua, of Yoshua, and the Israel circling the city of Yericho, of Jericho, seven times. And what happens? They circle seven times. The walls come crumbling down. Okay, the bride's going to get her husband, and his walls are going to come tumbling down. And we joked about it, but the reality is, as I thought about it, I think it's really a great idea because what it is is that she's breaking down the walls that separate her from him. And in essence, she's building a new set of walls around the two of them. We see that in uh, the first chapter of Bereshit in Genesis, when Hashem makes mankind, he creates mankind as man and woman. And basically, then we're separated. So we we then have to come together again. There's a single soul that's separated into two souls, and those souls coming together again in the in the marriage form this single soul. In order to form a single soul, if I come in with a hundred percent and she comes in with a hundred percent, then it doesn't really work. We have to shed some of our previous thinking. We have to be able to shed our past things so that we can come together and form a single unit. Rabbi Abitam would often tell us that the word ahava, love, in Hebrew has a root hav, 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 to give. And he would tell us that a successful marriage is when both sides seek to give, to share, and to become a true single unit. The circling that the bride makes around her, her groom is reminiscent of building the walls around them and it's interesting that we Sephardim we have as part of the wedding ceremony where we take the talet and place it over the couple the man's talet placing it over the couple and often this talet is a gift from his wife and that talet is symbolic of the 
chupah of the roof, and the man brings the roof to the marriage while the woman brings the walls. She's the protective walls around the marriage. And together they form a true a true partnership. The mashal is told of the practice that would take place for a couple who was about to get married in Yemen. Now, I don't know if this is real. I think it's just the mashal. Uh, but I remember the rabbi would tell it over. I heard it also from Rabbi Yaniv Merov. And uh, the story is that a donkey would lead the young couple to their wedding, during which they would wave to the bystanders and wish each other, wish each other well. However, the caveat was that the donkey held only one passenger at a time. Either the bride or the groom could sit atop the donkey, but not both at the same time. So what were they to do? And as the tale goes, for one couple, the group sat on the donkey as the bride walked beside him. But soon enough, people began rumoring that the couple is not even married yet. And the husband is already controlling the wife. So the future husband and wife decided to switch places. The bride sat atop the donkey as the groom strode beside. But yet again, it was not long before people began whispering that they are not even married yet. And the wife is asserting her power and trying to dominate the husband. Now they were at an impasse. So what did they do? So they both remained off the donkey walking beside it. But it didn't stop people from clamoring and talking to one another about the absurdity that they were witnessing in front of them. It was a bride and groom with a perfectly healthy donkey right beside them, and neither of them were going to sit on top of the donkey. Were they stupid? At this point, the bride and groom had too much, and they realized they had to do something to stop the talking. So together, they climbed upon the donkey. But quicker than ever, the comments continued. How could they be so thoughtless? Here is this poor donkey who was carrying them both. By now, the bride and groom were exasperated. They couldn't take it. And in a moment of annoyance, they came up with what they would do together. They lifted the donkey, placed it on their shoulders and started to walk. But that only drove the townspeople wild with laughter. And then they realized that whatever they would do, there would always be criticism. Always. Never would they find the exact perfect way of being that would make everyone approve of them or like what they were doing. So they decided that they were going to make the right choice, do what they believe should be done, and not look at anyone else for approval. So before we get into the meat and potatoes of the class, we have to remember that this really is something that Moshe is telling the people, that life is filled with free choices. Life is filled with choice. That is the essence of life, the choice to choose between good and evil, bad and good and evil... uh, a blessing and curse which we'll get to or in fact life and death and you know we could think that you know it's a simple choice no one's going to make the stupid choice but if we go back to the garden of eden if we go back to the first choice man and is placed in the garden and hashem tells them you can eat from every tree in the garden and every tree included every tree meaning including the tree of life and there was only one tree man wasn't supposed to eat from and that was the tree of of knowledge of good and evil that was the tree that would in essence mix things up but it had such a cool name and you know the uh, the sweetest fruits are the forbidden fruits and man in fact was told that if you eat from this tree man is going to die so man was given the choice between life and death and crazy enough man chose death this this fact that we have free choice plays on us every single day 
and many times throughout the day. Life is simply a test. I heard a story recently which happened back in the 1960s. There was a well-known professor and scientist. His name was Dr. Velvel Green. He was then a professor of microbiology and public health at the University of Minnesota. And he had also been recently hired by NASA. And his job was going to be to help find life on Mars. So he was, at least locally, he was somewhat famous. Around the time, Rabbi Moshe Feller had recently moved back home to Minneapolis. And uh, he was a Chabad rabbi, and he was sent as the chief emissary for the state of Minnesota. And he devoted much effort to get Professor Green to become more mitzvah observant, and they spoke often. One day, Rabbi Feller called Dr. Green and said, Velvel, I know you're traveling somewhere by plane. Before you take this trip, please do me a favor. Call the airline, order a kosher meal. Velvel replied, what? You know I don't keep kosher. If I, didn't, if I don't keep kosher in my house, why do I need to keep kosher on the plane? And Rabbi Feller responded that when the other Jewish passengers hear that Professor Velva Green had asked for a kosher meal, it might inspire them as well. Why should they lose out just because he's not there yet? Velva responded, look, I'm not so sure about all this, but if it's going to make you happy, Rabbi, I'll do you the favor. I love how Chabad rabbis get people to do them a favor to make them happy. So Dr. Green ordered his kosher meal. He boarded the plane the next day. When the flight attendant came by, she handed him a regular non-kosher meal. Dr. Green was ready for this. Clearing his throat, he declared for everybody to hear, No, ma'am, I ordered a kosher meal. Your name, please, Professor Velvel Green. She replied, Okay, we'll check on that for you, sir. And all turned, all heads turned around. Professor Green had ordered a kosher meal. While fellow passengers were feasting on their chicken parmesan, their steak, wiping the gravy with bread, the flight attendant was nowhere to be found. The professor was hungry. His mouth was starting to really salivate, and the aromas were stabbing him. He pushed the little button, and when the stewardess returned, he said to her, the flight attendant returned, he said, Do you know my kosher meal, ma'am? She replied, We're still checking, sir. After a few minutes and everyone on the plane had been served, the flight attendant came to his seat and said, um, Dr. Green, there must have been a mistake. We don't seem to have your kosher meal on the plane. Dr. Green was about to blurt out, fine, give me another meal. After all, this wasn't his idea. He ate all sorts of food at home. Problem was, how could he ask for that meal after he had just made a big deal on the plane for everyone to know that Professor Velvel Green had ordered a kosher meal? How would it look if he suddenly said, fine, give me a regular meal? So Green resisted. But Green was very angry. He was very angry. He was angry at the airline. He was angry at himself for listening to this nonsense. He was angry at God because the least God could have done was to arrange for him to have a meal on the plane. Especially after Green had done something nice for God. But he was most angry, boiling angry at Rabbi Moshe Feller for convincing him to do this. Right then, Green decided that he would show him. And so a few minutes later... He landed at Chicago's O'Hare Airport. It was midnight. It was a one-hour stopover. He arrived at the terminal. Everyone was closed except for one store, a non-kosher hot dog stand. The hot dogs looked and smelled so good, plump and juicy. There was even hot sauerkraut available. Velvet Green was very hungry, but he was even more angry than hungry. He therefore headed first to the phone booth. He called the rabbi, collect. 
collect coal in the middle of the night was something to invite panic. And indeed, Rabbi Feller was deeply concerned that something terrible had happened. This is a very upset and hungry Professor Green calling from O'Hare Airport in Chicago. I'll have you know that they did not have the kosher meal that I ordered at your request on the plane, and now I'm starving. And I also want you to know that there's a hot dog stand 20 feet away from me right now. But before I go ahead and buy one and eat it, I just wanted to wake you up to tell you exactly what I'm going to do. I'm going to enjoy it with mustard, onions, relish, and kraut. And after the first one, I'm going to have a second one. The rabbi was quiet for a second, and then he said, Velvel, on many occasions you have asked me about the essence of Judaism, that it all comes down to what? What? It calls forth from within us. Tonight, right now, in this telephone conversation, Velvel, I'm going to tell you the essence of Judaism. It's about passing the hot dog stand and not buying one. It's about being able to get on your connecting flight without having eaten the hot dog. That's all of Judaism. The rest is commentary. The professor's response was instant. Feller, you're nuts. I always thought you were nuts. Now I know you're nuts. This is all of Judaism. Feller, as every bite of this hot dog goes down my throat, I'm going to be thinking of you and saying your name. I'm going to eat every bit of the Trave hot dog in your honor. Hung up the phone. Headed straight for the hot dog stand. Stood in line. Waited for his turn. He was about to place his order when something very strange happened. He tried to say, can I have a hot dog? He wanted it. He was hungry. He was angry. And gosh, those hot dogs looked better and better with each rotation of the grill. But he couldn't. At that moment, he got it. It wasn't that he was stronger than the hot dog or than the craving in his gut. It was that Hashem was stronger than that hot dog. And he had to listen to Hashem, not out of fear, not out of guilt, but out of love. And that truly is Judaism, all of it. Professor Green never bought that hot dog, not then, not ever again. That trip changed his life. One small no for a hot dog, one great step for a man. What's also interesting is that in this, this idea that Moshe presents, he's, he's basically telling us that what we have to do is give up in this world in order to have in the next world. I saw the comments of the Orach Haim HaKadosh and he says, and I'm quoting, I believe that the wording of our verse is connected to the message which Moshe Rabbeinu wants to convey, that the people should learn to set more store by the blessings which will accrue to them in Olam Haba, the future world, than the blessings which will accrue to them in this life. And he continues, in order for the prophet who conveys such chi teaching to be believable, he has to possess two qualifications. He has to have a deep appreciation of the value of the good to be experienced only in Olam Haba. And he has to also have demonstrated that he personally has achieved success in this life and what it has to offer. If the person preaching the values of the hereafter were not himself blessed with success in this life, his listeners would not believe him thinking that he consoles himself with something in the future because he had been unable to attain it in the here and now. 
Moreover, even if someone who has experienced all that this life has to offer praises Olam Haba in exaggerated terms, he's not liable to be believed unless he can prove that he has first had experience of what goes on there. This is why Moshe Rabbeinu felt impelled to apply the term Anochi. We see Anochi really only used with regard to Hashem. He invites people to look at him as a personification of the truth of what he is about to tell them. He had attained all the honor and glory that is possible to attain in this life. He was a king over a mighty nation, was personally wealthy, physically endowed as a, as, a, as a giant, as a warrior. In addition, he had ascended to heaven and experienced a taste of what is in store there. And having explained all this to the people, Moshe mentions the message he had for the people. He used the words in the singular to remind the people that whatever is perceived by means of the sense of sight is experienced equally by all people through, as we said before, their perception, but also by means of their other senses, which vary in depth. Each one of B'nai Israel had seen Moshe's stature with their own eyes. They had been aware of Moshe having spent time in the heavens. Moshe had something else in mind when he said, He's saying, look at me. Rambam explains that every person has the potential to become the equal of Moshe Rabbeinu. This is precisely what Moshe meant. He said, take a good look at me. Everything that I have accomplished, you are able to accomplish for yourselves. Whenever a person aspires to serve Hashem, he is not to look at people who have been underachievers compared to him and to use such a comparison in order to pat himself on the back. But he is to train his sights on those who have achieved more than him spiritually. I remember Rabbi Abitan used to tell us that the problem is we often look up to people who have wealth, he said, but we look down on people who are spiritually, who have achieved spiritual heights. He says it has to be the reverse. We have to look up to climb out of the pit from some people and we have to look up to climb up to the stars of other people. So really all of us have this ability to achieve. All of us have this ability to, to move to a, to a greater place. Let's continue with, with the perashah. Look, I have placed before you today blessing and a curse. And we said, who's going to choose a curse? And what does it really mean? The bracha, if you listen to the words of God, your God, which I command you today. And the curse, if you don't listen to the mitzvot of Hashem, your God, and you go away from the path, which I command you this day, to go after other gods, which you have not known. So we see the portion opens, blessing and a curse. We have to understand, what does it mean for Hashem to curse? We know that Hashem is going to punish. You know, it says, the curse if you don't listen. What do you mean curse if you don't listen? If we go back to the Garden of Eden again, we see that after the sin, Hashem curses the snake. Hashem curses the snake. But really, what's the curse of the snake? It seems to be a list of punishments. So what does it really mean to curse? Man is cursed, women is cursed, but in, in, in all the cases, the curses are actually punishments. We have a commandment that says the person who care, curses his parents, that person has to be punished. But again, what, what does curse have to do with it? We, we see in this, in this portion, again, that we're going to come into the land and 
we're going to end up going and there's going to be blessings to be given on one mountain and curses given on another mountain. Again, the confusion over this meaning of curse. It's probably better if Moshe would have said, see, I place before you today reward and punishment as opposed to blessing and curse. But then we have to analyze what does Moshe here mean by blessing? What does he mean by curse? We always said blessing is expansion, but what does he mean here? You know, as kids, we grew up with the saying, sticks and stones will break my bones, but words will never harm me. So we wonder, is a curse similar? Is a curse someone lashing out at someone else because he's not in a position to do physical harm? What does the curse really mean? What does it do? For example, we have, uh, when we come to the curses on the two mountains in uh, in Kitavo, it says, you know, the person who steals land from his friend, who takes land from his friend, he's cursed. But again, what does it mean he's cursed? If the person does something wrong, he's going to get punished. Boom, Hashem's going to punish you. It says that, that seems to be what it is. So what is Moshe teaching us? So we have in this portion, we have in the continuation, next week's portion, we have in the end of Devarim, we have all of these choices, choose before you, life and death, good and evil, uh, blessing and curse. What is Hashem saying? And, and like we said before, who's going to choose death? Who's going to choose curse who's going to choose evil Rashi elaborates on a midrash that we've, we've made and we've mentioned a number of times and it was interesting I saw that Rabbi Haber also brought it up in his uh, class last week which a few people sent to me to listen on the orthodox life it's interesting you should listen to it it's on uh, learn Torah or I Torah you could hear it and uh, he, he brings the same story up, which, which we've mentioned in the past. And the story is, is based on the Midrash. And it tells us that in life, there are basically two paths that we can choose. There's a path that begins thorns with thorns. It's a difficult path. And as we go through that difficult path, it becomes very easy on the other end. And then there's the other path in life, which is very easy at the beginning, which, but ends up being mired in thorns. And the Arizal, the Ramchal, or Moshe Chaim Luzato, they all teach us that really, this really, this, this, this speech by Moshe is really telling us about the path in life that we need to choose. We are given an opportunity at the outset of life. We have an easy path that we can choose, which will become very difficult. We have a difficult path that we can choose, which will become easy. What are we supposed to do? When we see so many examples in life, in the realities of life, life that we live, that you know, a person struggles in the beginning, he puts in the effort, and then he's rewarded later in life. Or the person chooses the easy way in the beginning, takes the easy money, and life later on he finds to be very, very difficult. So the rabbis are telling us, listen, in life you have to choose the difficult way. The difficult way will become easy. It's interesting that when Rabbi Akiva goes to visit his Rabbi Rabbi Eliezer, and Rabbi Eliezer is is on his deathbed, and he sees that he's suffering, and everyone is so sad that Rabbi Eliezer is suffering, and Rabbi Akiva seems to be smiling, and he says, why why are you smiling? He says, because they see his suffering in this world, which means you're suffering in this world, and your life is going to be incredible in Olam Haba. Like we said before, it's only Moshe Rabbeinu who could speak about Olam Haba, in the future world. And we don't focus in Judaism on the future world, but we have to recognize that there's a future world. The world and anything within this world requires hard work. The rabbis tell us that the future world requires hard work. But without thinking of the future world, remember the rabbis also tell us that the land of Israel doesn't come to us easy. 
comes with great difficulties. And the Torah also comes with great difficulties. And if someone tells you he didn't work hard at the Torah, then you can't really accept that he learned the Torah. If someone tells you he worked hard, then you can accept because that's the way of this world. It takes hard work to be able to succeed. So maybe we could suggest that the blessing, the beracha, is when we commit ourselves to take the hard road, which will bring us to the good road. And the curse is when we lazily choose the easy way out. We choose the way without work, easy come, easy go. But we end up on this road of thorns. Dari explains when we see the word vayeshev, we see that anytime we sit to relax, we stop the effort, all of a sudden we get zapped. We see in the Parshat Vayeshev, the opening verses back in Genesis chapter 37. Now Yaakov settled in the land, but Vayeshev is a connotation to rest. We see Rashi writes, Vayeshev, Yaakov wished to live at ease, but this trouble in connection with Yosef suddenly came upon him. And Rashi comments based on Bereshit Rabbah. When the Sadiqim wished to live at ease, the Holy One, blessed be He, says to them, Are not the Sadiqim satisfied with what is stored up for them in the world to come that they wish to live at ease in this world too? We can compare this also to the opening verse in chapter 25 of Bamidbar. Vayeshev Yisrael Bashitim. And Yisrael dwelled in Shitim. And we see that the problem happens there in Shittim when Bnei Yisrael come to dwell. It says, And the nation came to profane themselves with uh, the women of, uh, of Moab. So again, there's a concept of coming to rest. And the following the rest begins the storm. So what the rabbis are telling us is that anytime we come to rest... It's even, uh, we come sort of to rest in Goshen And uh, then the trouble begins We come to rest There's no rest in this world We see always I always think of uh, of Pirkavot Where uh, we're told that uh, the work is great The owner is pressing We have to do whatever we can on a daily basis You know, we have vacation to rest and re re uh, recharge our batteries but there's really no vacation from from responsibility there's no vacation from learning there's no vacation from growth we have to understand vacation and retirement and the idea of taking it easy it's when we take it easy when we stop making the effort that we get hit you know again the the Torah at the end of Devarim tells us that Yeshurun got fat and we kicked we rebelled sometimes when we stop when we sit when we become a couch potato that's when the problem strikes I think of Moshe Rabbeinu when he's upset with the tribes of Reuven and God. He's upset because he feels that they want to stop where they are. They're outside the land. They have their cattle. They have the land that they just won. They want to build their houses. They build their pens and stay there. So he's upset with them. But when they say, no, we're going to go in first. We're going to lead the attack. We're going to be the front of the army. We're committed to fight. Then we're going to come back and we'll take care of everything here. Then everything changes. The whole idea is not to sit back, is not to stop. This is really what life is, being willing to take on the hard work. When people retire, 
if they retire in a way to go play golf or not to do anything anymore, it becomes very, very difficult. We see so many times, and there's a number of studies that show us when people stop to retire, then they suddenly start to get sick. It's crazy. But we see that when people retire to take on communal work, help others, and do what they're supposed to do, it's, it's unbelievable. You know, I think of my dad, you know, at, at a certain point, my dad's work, even though he came to work in the company every day, it became less as other people took on his responsibilities. But as his responsibilities decreased in the company, what he did was he took on more responsibilities of the community to the point that, uh, that the last decade of his life, he was literally, it seemed to be handling so many things after Marvin Azraq passed away and running the Achiezer all of their the things that they had the the different yeshivas the different schools the senior citizen center old age home meals on wheels there was so many things every single check for the organization came through him he knew everything that was going on and i remember because you know he he passed away so suddenly he got a foot in cut his cut his foot he got an infection he passed away a couple of weeks later he was in the middle of handling everything and they had no one to handle everything it was almost like being left like an orphan but, but really, this is the blessing. The blessing is to be able to take on and to do for other people and to continue in our efforts because that's the blessing. When we continue in our efforts, when we do for others, when we're able to care for others, there's tremendous growth. And with that comes strength and blessing from Hashem. When Adam Harishon sinned, the Mekubalim tell us what happened. He released these negative entities into the world. These negative entities, these whatever we're going to call them, Shadim, uh, we could call them it's all these things he released. And if we let our guard down for a minute, these negative entities, these negative forces, they come after us. The way to keep them away is to keep working, to keep traveling. Rabbi Abitan would tell us that life is like going up a down escalator. You're going to go up, but the escalator is coming down. If you stand where you are, you're going to quickly get to the bottom. There's no standing still. In fact, you have to go faster than the escalator coming down in order to rise. You have to constantly be moving. We're called holchim. We're the ones who go. We live by halacha. We move as opposed to angels who are omdim. We see that Yaakov Avinu, when he rests, there's a problem. We have to be on the constant move, constant growth in order to battle. You know, we, re- we, we, we mentioned in the past that when Yaakov Avinu, he's going to leave his, uh, his father's house. He's 60 years old, and his brother says he's going to kill him. His mother says to go. His father says to go. He's going to go find a wife by Uncle Lavan. What does he do? He goes and he spends 14 years at the yeshiva of Shem Be'ever. He learns all the time. And then he picks up to go to Uncle Lavan. And on the way, he falls asleep. He has a dream. He sees angels coming up and down the ladder. He sees the angels in his dream. And then he works for 20 years by his uncle, where he says he worked day and night. And when he returns, he sees angels, mamash, real angels. What's going on? After the shiva, he could only see them in the dream. But after working in the field for 20 years and watching the sheep and not sleeping, he could see them real. Because life is growth through work. There's tremendous growth and when we seek to rest, when we seek to stop, when we seek not to grow, it's dangerous because we fall completely back. It's interesting that the 
the edict against Abraham only comes to fulfillment when we see that Yaakov came to rest. And all of a sudden we have the incident of Yosef. The battle against these entities is ours to win as long as we're fighting. But as soon as we sit back, as soon as we say we're tired, as soon as we rest, as soon as we can't do any more, those entities see us and know they could attack. It's the people who retire early with nothing on their schedule, nothing to do. They get sick. It's the people who work nonstop, who push nonstop, who grow nonstop, who go. You know, we have a, a man in our, in our synagogue. It's unbelievable. Uh, I, I mean, in the last few weeks, this, he's retired. But what did he do? He completely cleaned out the synagogue, something I haven't seen in decades. And, and it's really to give him a tremendous, tremendous respect and kavod. And this is where protection comes. This is where the growth. I'm dedicating myself to the, to the community. I'm dedicating myself to help other people. I can block the negative by working. In the past, we talked about Yisurim, that, that a person should know that the slightest thing that goes wrong, he should look on as, a, as a, some level of a punishment. You put your hand in your pocket, you pull out the wrong coin. What did I do? Hashem is talking to me. It's interesting that uh, Rabbi Chaim Vital, he says that, that someone who doesn't suffer anything for a month, he should be very afraid. It's the calm before the storm. In order to battle, we need to constantly battle. In order to battle the negative forces, we just need to fight. We just need to do. We just need to keep moving. We protect ourselves by working harder. We become stronger. By doing, we're able to defend ourselves against the negative forces. It's easy, mashal. A person goes to the doctor. The doctor says, listen, you're sitting home. You're becoming a couch potato. You're not moving. You're going to be under attack. Your cholesterol, your weight, your this, your that, your numbers. And he says to him, you want to do something? Go to the gym. Work out control push yourself he gets a trainer a trainer yells at him he tells him you idiot you gotta move you gotta press you gotta do this you gotta do that and he takes it he fights he sweats he pushes he perseveres he goes on because by doing that and pushing himself he protects himself so what does this idea of a curse mean a curse means being stripped of our defenses of our shield and what is a blessing? A blessing is having this defensive shield to protect us from these negative forces. The rabbi would tell us we're constantly facing these attacking forces. We could give them different names, demons. But what does the curse mean? What does a curse mean? The curse means that I'm being stripped of my defenses. The curse means that those entities are going to be allowed to attack me. I'm being left on my own without protection. Like we said, even when we go back to Egypt, it's only when they rest in Goshen, when they become happy, they've invested in real estate, they're relaxing, they're enjoying themselves in the land. It's only then that the slavery begins. They go through the whole period of Yosef, they go through the period while Levi is alive. They, they really don't suffer the slavery until the final, until the final half of their, their sojourn in Egypt. And that's only when they decide we're happy here, we're happy here, we're resting. Rabbi Adarit had explained to us once that uh, these entities receive their their power from the from the dark side, and you know we associate the dark side with Satan. But we also spoke about the Satan has a wife, Lil, 
we say that Hashem should defend us, He should protect us from Yagon and Anacha. In parentheses, we see that one is Satan, Samach Mem, and the other one is his wife, Elael. We see it again in Soivecha, Sonecha. One is, again, Samach Mem, the angel, and one is the wife, Lil. And the rabbis teach us that when the two of them come together, their power is incredible. The power is incredible. But there's a way to break up their power. The rabbis tell us that there's a special name of Hashem that's in the three letters Kapai. Kaf, Pei, Yud. But Kapai also means my palm, my hand. It's the palm, that's Kapai, that separates us, that separates Satan from his wife. And it weakens all of the entities that are dependent on them or sourced through them. We say, Tikon tefilati ketoret lefanecha masa kapai minchat arev hakshiva kichoshavi kilechet palel. We talk about our hands. We spoke about before that in ancient times we would pray with our hands raised. We stopped that when the goyim copied us. But kapai also indicates work. It also indicates the work of our hands. It indicates that a person has to understand that in order to battle, the person has to work. When, when, when ya- Yaakov Avinu is confronted by his father-in-law, he tells him how he didn't rest and he worked for him for 20 years. The work for his father-in-law, the 20 years of work nonstop, that's what protected him from the dark side and their forces. You know, I'm also reminded, we have the word re'e anochi, see, I have said, you know, the, the Pirkei Avot says, says, Ezehu hacham haro'e et hanolan. The, who is the wise person? The person who can see the future. The person who can see what's going to become. The person who sees. And the person has to see, what do I need to do in order to get from point A to point B? I need to move faster than the escalator against me. This portion is always read before we begin the month of Elul. We have uh, my Hebrew birthday is Shabbat, the 29th of uh, of Elul, and then we go right into Rosh Chodesh. We have Rosh Chodesh Elul, and then we begin Selichot. So we always read this, and it's almost like there's a message from Moshe Rabbeinu before we go into Elul. Elul, Ani ledodi vedodi li. I am for my beloved. My beloved is for me. This is the month of return. This is the month of Teshuvah. This is the month of correction. This is the month when we can make up for the entire year. We begin as Sephardim to recite the prayers of Selichot, beginning with this month until Yom Kippur. And whatever our role is in this world, we have to do the best we can in that role. If our role is to be a support of Torah, to earn money, to support Siddaka, to do the things, then we have to work very hard doing that in order to support and do what we're supposed to do. And if our job, what we take on the role that Hashem gave us is to do chesed and to help people, then we have to dedicate ourselves there. And if our role is to sit and learn in the Bet Midrash, then we have to do that, not a half hour here and there. But we have to focus and push and work hard and sweat. It's like being in the gym. The more pain, the more gain. The more pain, the more gain. The whole idea of blessing and curse is protection or lack of protection. The blessing is for someone who takes the difficult path that will eventually be easy. The curse is the one who takes the easy path and easy come and easy go and eventually it's going to be difficult. As we go into Elul, as we are told, please join us for Silichot in the morning. Get up early. Push yourself to do more. Push yourself to work harder. 
push yourself to learn something extra. The rabbis tell us now we see the nights start to get a little bit longer. We could dedicate ourselves a little more to learning Torah at night. We have a little more time to focus on the Torah. We have an impetus to focus because the holidays are right there. Rosh Hashanah is coming. Yom Ma'amatadin is coming. It's all in front of us. And now we have the chance to do. But how do we do? How are we protected? How do we achieve blessing? By pushing, by working, by doing harder and harder. Don't give up. Don't sit. Don't relax. We can all go forward. We can all do. We can all achieve. And Hashem will bless us with a happy and healthy year. And Hashem will bring us. Amen.